1: When the seagulls follow
2: the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it.
1: I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday.
2: And you can pair
3: up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner.
4: Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes
5: or no? Yes. Oh, oh. he hasn't. No!
3: Hello and welcome to Quickly, Kevin, Will He Score? It's Series 11, Episode 8. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me as always, Josh Whitakham. Hello. And he's a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. It's Michael Marden. Hello. How are we doing, gents? Very good. How are you? Yeah, really good. Really, really good.
4: Yeah, good. The temptation there is always to spin off and talk about the song that Skull was just referenced. And then we end up going down a five-minute 90s music cul-de-sac. So I'm not (laughs) going to. I
3: don't see it as a (laughs) cul-de-sac. i say it's a long open road. What's memory most triggered when you talk about Barbie Girl?
6: Not none,
3: really, because I think it's one of those songs
6: that's carried on being used. So you don't remember it being at the time, if that
3: makes sense. Do you remember the Chicken Man on uh, X Factor? The auditions?
6: No, because I don't watch X Factor.
3: <laughs> <laughs> You'd no. have to have watched. You would have to have watched yeah. X Factor about twenty years was, ago. Yeah, as well. I've
4: got literally no interest in X Factor. <laughs> that horse is bolted. I mean, I, I yeah. instantly regret exactly what I feared would happen. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's happening. <laughs> let's, do
6: the, let's do the 90s o'clock news, girl. Let's just do it.
5: Quarters
4: of ITN News at Ten with Chris Scull. Is
3: Michael Owen the most hated man in nineties football? And an evening with Peter Shilton attracts some interesting comments.
6: Oh, great. <laughs> I'm more into the second story, if I'm
3: honest. But let's let's get through the first. Oh, okay, one. okay. Well, the first story. I just thought this is interesting. I wanted to hear your thoughts. Michael Owen has done. Uh, there's quite a good kit show on BT Sport. Have you seen it? Where footballers talk about the various kits of their kind of career. Right. And Michael Owen had had this to say about his move to Newcastle. And I just thought it was it's fascinating. You don't hear a footballer talking about talking about like this usually. And I just thought, let's hear what Michael Owen. The star of the World Cup in '98. Let's hear what he's got to say.
2: No, 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 no. I'll go back to Liverpool, but no, no, no. I'm not going. I'm not going anywhere else. Liverpool. And he goes, well, Newcastle have bid 16 million pounds. If New- Liverpool do that, then you can go there. But if not, then you either stay here or you go to Newcastle. And I'm like, okay, I'll stay here. I'll stay here. It's no, no problem. Obviously, putting on a poker face. Spoke to Liverpool again. They, I said, if you just go to 12 million, I'll. I'll play poker, you know, I'll I'll hold my nerve and I'll force them into a corner to either keep me or go. But Liverpool said we can only go to 10. Wow. So then I had a big decision to make. We'd just signed Rubinho. We already had Ronaldo, Raul, Morientes. We had a World Cup coming at the end of the year. I was thinking I need to play all the time. I spoke to Newcastle and Newcastle agreed that if I sign for them, I can do one year. And then they'll sell me to Liverpool for twelve million an agreed fee. Okay. And then if I do another year, then they'll sell me to Liverpool for eight million. And another year for four. So every year it would be more attractive for Liverpool to buy me back. To buy you back yeah, yeah. So that's the so agreement. He always I had wants to go back to Liverpool, every, yeah, yeah, every yeah. time. And the mad thing is, whereas this is that I was going to be hopefully going back for twelve, did my knee. So then, at every junction, then, then Liverpool bought Torres and Suarez, and it just never ever
6: happened. Never but then every, at the end of every year, I would obviously try to, try to go back again. That's back. absolutely fascinating. So, <laughs> I'm going to say it Michael, Liverpool don't want you, mate. They've sold you, <laughs> they've sold you, and they don't want to buy you back. Just give it up. That's, it's embarrassing. <laughs> You're, he's talking about his poker face and he's just going to Liverpool and begging them to sign him. I'll do the poker face. And yet, in his Newcastle contract, he's got all these Liverpool clauses that are based on Liverpool not being interested in him. Liverpool don't want
3: you. <laughs> also, it's like, was it like, there's two million difference? He's like, oh, they're bid 10, but they won't bid 12. It's it's like, it's, it's so marginal. They're not fast, fussed. Michael. They're, not fu- they're not fussed. But also, like... I found it weird, imagine being a Newcastle fan, ha- hearing that, or, or or doing the deal for Newcastle, it's like, this guy is just desperate, he's joining here, but he's desperate to leave, as yeah. part of the joining process.
6: Well, that probably happens quite a lot, do you know what I mean? I've I just looked at the timeline of his career, I didn't realise he left in 2004, so he didn't win the, he left just before uh, Rafa Benitez, well, as Rafa Benitez arrived, I don't know which side of it. So he missed out on the Champions League year by one season. If he'd rejoined, it would have been hilarious if he had rejoined Liverpool and been there for all of his career except the year they won the Champions League when he wasn't there. (laughs) By the way, when they signed Torres, that wasn't because you had a knee injury.
3: Like, that wasn't the option. The only reason, they looked at the situation, we're going to have to sign Torres now.
6: (laughs) By the the time they're signing Suarez, the horse has bolted. Can I ask, Skull, how you feel about him? Uh, even in that uh, quite sad diatribe, he still doesn't reference that they signed Andy Carroll at one point as well. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Do you think every striker Liverpool has signed since, he's just looking on thinking, my bloody knee.
6: Yeah, then they signed Sean Dundee. I so said Rafa Benitez sold him, right? Because according to Wikipedia... He spent the first few games of the 2004-05 season, which was the Benitez first season, on the bench in the Champions League, so he wasn't cup-tied, so they could sell him. So Liverpool's manager, Rafa Benitez, one of his first acts is to make sure that Michael Owen is a sellable prospect. And yet <laughs> a year later, Michael Owen is absolutely <laughs> desperate to rejoin.
3: Desperate to come back, writing clauses into contracts.
6: If you could let us know... A bit more about whether we we misinterpreted the
3: situation, and whether
6: Rafa Benita's hand was forced or something.
3: Or if you're if you support a club that Michael Owen played for, and if you think kindly on his time there, do
6: you think? Do you think his Stoke City contract, when he was playing out the last eight games of his career, had a Liverpool release (laughs) clause in it? (laughs) Right. Tell us about Peter Shilton.
3: Right, Peter Schmeichel. So um, Peter Schmeichel. Peter Schmeichel. Oh,
4: you said Peter Shilton. Whoa, you said Shilton. Did I? Yeah. Oh, that
3: was a slip up. Oh, that's sorry. All right.
4: would, you say, would you say, now, Josh, are you more or less excited?
3: Less?
6: Yeah, because Peter Sh-
4: an evening with Peter Shilton's a much
3: more...
6: There's a lot more firecracker options as to what could happen, politically or in terms well, of there his was penalties.
3: A, he was advertising an evening with Peter Shilton. I don't know if anyone went to it. Oh, that's, well, that's, why that was.
6: that's why it seeped into your brain. Tell us about Peter Schmeichel.
3: Well, an evening with Peter Schmeichel, January 27th. Uh, 2023, £40 per person. Uh, there's a sponsored post doing the rounds on Facebook. Top comment from Paul Jeep. Will there be food there? Plenty of chips, I imagine. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's that's unfair, isn't it? That is unfair. <laughs> Top comment. Top comment. Do you, do you think this chips thing is on Schmeichel's radar? Yeah,
6: because I, th- I don't think it's a purely quickly Kevin thing. I think it's been yeah. on his radar since the mid-90s. But not enough for him to step back two steps when he's positioning himself. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we have some correspondence? Do yes, please.
3: I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the electronic postbag.
7: You've got mail.
3: Now, um,
6: firstly, can I clear up? We've had a few emails on this. People saying that our theory about Daniel Amacacci's uh, Behaviour leading to Three Lions existing, uh, because Three Lions was the official England song of Euro 96. Some people have poo-pooed our theory, pointing out that Simply Red was the official song of Euro 96. Uh, but it wasn't. It that that it was the official song of Euro 96. It wasn't the official England song of Euro 96. Yes. Three Lions was the official England song. So uh, that is important to clear up. When you've had more than one person email you... Uh, little smugly, should we say. Right, would you like to hear an incredible story? I'd say has a very sad moment and then a very happy moment, but really, I can't believe we haven't covered this. This is from Sam King. Hi, I'm a long-time Quickly Kevin listener, and I've loved hearing the stories regarding 90s football that have been told on the podcast by yourselves. However, unless I'm mistaken, the most incredible 90s football story of all time has not been discussed on the pod. That of the parachuting Santa Claus, who lost his leg after hitting the top of the stand at Villa Park. Do you know about this? Villa Park,
3: yeah. Yeah, I remember this. Was it televised? Was it televised?
6: Well, we go back to Sunday, the 13th of December, 1998, and Aston Villa hosting the then Premier League champions, Arsenal. Arsenal go 2-0 up, thanks to two goals from Dennis Bergkamp. Soon after the Dutchman's second goal, it's half-time. The players head into the dressing room. With Christmas just around the corner, it's time for a festive show which involves the former RAF flight sergeant called Nigel Rogoff parachuting onto the pitch dressed as Santa, handing out gifts to young Villa fans. Rogoff flies through the air and looks set for a safe landing before disaster strikes. He smashes into the roof of the Trinity stand, uh, tumbling onto the ground. He loses his leg. It's an absolutely shocking thing to happen, but Rogoff reflects on what happened a few years later, saying, ''You stick your neck out there sometimes in life, and sometimes things don't quite get your way.'' Another layer, Nigel went on to marry the nurse who cared for him at the rehabilitation centre in Epsom, Surrey, where he learned to walk again. Nigel and Sarah are still together and are parents to twin boys, Harry and Oliver. So it's got a happy ending. Isn't this an incredible <laughs> story?
7: Crazy.
6: Also, Villa ended up winning 3-2, thanks to two goals from <laughs> Dion Dublin and one from Julian Joachim. All in all, an incredible December afternoon in the West Midlands. Isn't that incredible?
3: That, that,
6: that, I remember that, that. That's amazing that it had a happy ending. Isn't that good? So there we go. Do you want to know about David Speedy's thirty-six-year-old grudge? Oh
3: yes, yeah. I've, but like, I'll preface this by saying that lots of people say David Speedy is uh, can be a disagreeable man. He has that, rep- and, it, and I think he played yeah, that way. I, I got the feeling
6: when we interviewed was it was it Pat Nevin we interviewed, yeah. and um, I got a distinct impression that um, that he. Didn't love David Speedy. Uh, Declan Ross. David Speedy's 36-year-old grudge. So, uh, when Man U were 4-0 down to Man City, they cut to a picture of Alex Ferguson looking sad. Speedy screen-grabbed that, put it on his Twitter with the caption, it's how I felt when you left me out of the 1986 World Cup squad. Long may it continue. I mean, I didn't... Was David Speedy that good a player that it was a shock when he didn't go to the... The Mexico '86 World Cup. Uh, it's a tough one.
3: <clears throat> Scotland around this time—that's a really difficult one because you just don't know. Is David David Speedie the best, or is Kenny Dalglish knocking around? Do you know what I mean? Like Scotland in the '80s well, is a—I should say—I I actually did bizarrely
6: bump into Pat Nevin yesterday, and I got talking to him about Paul Starrock, the uh, Dundee United striker, went, went on to be manager of Plymouth Southampton, and he said that Paul Sturrock was an incredible striker, but he was. Basically, exactly the same player as Kenny Dalgleish, so he didn't get many caps. So I imagine Paul
3: Sturrock was ahead of David Speedy in the Scotland pecking order. I'm going to say it. I love that you bump into Pat Nevin and talk turns to Paul Sturrock almost immediately.
6: How did that happen? Let me, let me <laughs> tr- trace that through. I can't remember why. Oh, Pat Nevin was talking. Hey, Pat, about- how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Do you think Paul Sturrock should have played more games to Scotland? I was just thinking, this was in the lift. I was just thinking in the lift. Um, actually, you're exactly the man I could... I don't know if he did go to uh, the 1986 World Cup. He did. He played twice in Mexico 86, so... Well, Paul Sturrock. Yeah. feels too old. He feels too old for his... I don't know. Weird. He was born in 1956, so he was 30 when he went to Mexico 86. Blimey. I know to... we've discussed this before. It blows my mind that Alan Hansen's only got 26 Scotland caps and didn't go to Mexico 86. But there we go. That is odd, isn't it? That is odd, isn't it? Imagine if Alan Hansen
3: existed now, how central he'd be to the Scotland team. What happened with Scotland in the 80s? Like, it's freakish what happened in Scotland. What do you mean? Some of the world's best players. Like... Well, and it, Wales it's not really happened since is it to have that a generation of unbelievable like the best players in the world were all Scottish like that's crazy like three or four world who, class who are you players is as
6: your is as your best players in the world Kenny
3: Kenny Dalclish yeah. <laughs> yeah uh i think Andy Gorham for a time was one of the best goalkeepers in the Ali world Ali McCoist was very good wasn't he Ali McCoist um who else Alan Hanson. Alan Hansen. You're struggling to go. No, um, the dad of the uh, Gemmel, Archie Gemmel. I don't think Archie Gemmel and Andy Gorham.
6: <laughs> Your knowledge of Scottish football history is absolutely <laughs> all on. over the shop. I've never. And also, seeing Archie Gemmel as the dad of Scott Gemmel is something else. Come <laughs> on, <laughs> Andy Gorham, who is one of the best goalies in the world in the eighties. Let's just have a yeah. look at Andy Gorham's career. He signed for Rangers in 1991, Skull. He did make a Scotland debut in 1985, I'll give you that. But there we go, I don't know.
3: Gordon Strachan, oh, Graham Souness. Graham
6: Souness, Gordon Strachan. Gordon Strachan. Champagne Charlie Nicholas? Right, you're struggling. Frank McAvinney. Frank man, this is embarrassing. <laughs> William Wallace. <laughs> William Wallace, this is really <laughs> embarrassing. <William Wallace. laughs>
3: Lorraine <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, their players are, are cut above... Like, that is a unique amount of talent in a Scottish squad. Scotland fans, if I'm wrong about this, hello at quicklykevin.com.
6: You're going to get... The problem is you're going to get attacked by Scotland fans for being positive about Scotland.
3: Yeah, and attacked by English fans for being positive about Scotland. Steve Nichol? How about this? How about this? No one email in. (laughs) That's going to stop them. (laughs) How about this? No one email in.
6: (laughs) OK. If you, if, you want to, if you want to not email in, this is how to
3: not get in touch.
1: <laughs> get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin. And sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com.
3: Can I just say, here's me bigging up like this unique, talented generation uh, that Scotland uh, had. At 86, they finished bottom of their group, including Denmark, without winning a game. Denmark, West Germany, Uruguay, lost them all. That's a tough group, though, because Denmark were brilliant. It is a tough group. But uh, Denmark, clearly, much like Scotland, were going through a very much... a uh, <laughs> They were, though. Also, Andy Gorham's on the bench for Scotland in 86. It's embarrassing. So, despite being the, one of the world's best goalkeepers, he's not even the best goalkeeper in <laughs> despite Scotland. Despite being one of the world's best goalkeepers, he plays for Hibernian. That's how much goalkeeping talent there was in Scotland. Just the, so you the know, Best goalkeeper in, in the world was the second best. Just so you know, Nineteen eighty-six, he played for Oldham. Who must believe <laughs> that they're the world's best goalkeeper <laughs> between the sticks? <laughs> Uh, 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 and Alex focuses take one look at the world's best goalkeeper and gone nah get me Jim late in any day of the week (laughs) (laughs) okay now if you want to join the QK fan club right now you can get access to this episode in full without all the ads and find out what Martin Tyler thought about commentating on Brian Clough's last game at the city ground and interviewing him in a very emotional state after the game that's all there and this month we've got a special episode with Yap Stam that's exclusively available on the fan club. Plus, chapter eight of Sweeper this month as well with Ivo Graham. Lots of content to be consumed over on the Quickly Kevin fan club. To get access, pop over to anotherslice.com forward slash quicklykevin to subscribe. But
6: now, here he is. Absolutely wonderful man. You know when you interview someone you go, he has lived an incredible life and he knows it and he really loves talking about it, is the brilliant Martin Tyler.
3: Our guest this week is a legend of football broadcasting, a top-tier commentator across six different decades. He has commentated on thousands of games and is, of course, synonymous with his current employer, Sky, whom he joined in 1990, just in time for the advent of the Premier League. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, and it's pre-recorded, Martin Tyler. Good morning, Martin.
1: (laughs) Definitely not live. (laughs) (laughs) But it is is for us and I'll do my best for you because I know you I've listened to your podcast. They're great. Um, I'm rather daunted by being a guest on it, to be honest. Oh, not at all. You're a dream guest. Blimey.
6: The voice of the 90s in so many ways.
1: (laughs) Whenever we have a commentator
3: on Martin, we have we have to address, first of all, the, our title, which comes from an infamous line of commentary by Brian Moore at the 1998 World Cup. And we just want to say, we just want to confirm, we love Brian Moore. We want make that clear. As a paid-up member of the commentators' union, do you recall this line of commentary?
1: Yes, I knew Brian very well. I worked with him when I started in television at ITV when I wasn't a commentator. I never even thought about being a commentator, to be honest. He was um, a great mentor when the chances came my way. And I know that he deeply regretted saying the line oh, that Here you're. What have podcast. we done?
6: What have we done? <laughs> what have we uh, done?
1: It was a an impromptu, off the cuff remark, as you know, it had to be done quickly. And if he could have wiped one sentence. Oh, no, don't it would have been that sentence because he put Kevin and they had a great friendship. I mean, when um, Kevin was playing in Germany, Brian went over and made documentaries and their families were close and he just felt he put Kevin on the spot. And he's, um, he was a great broadcaster, wonderful voice, great enthusiasm for the game and um, also very much a humanitarian as well. And I think he felt that, that, I don't know Kevin's view on it. I have obviously talked to Kevin about broadcasting, but I'm not ever referred to that particular incident, but I know Brian would, would love to it not being remembered, <laughs> but uh, I understand all your followers go with it. And that's the life of a commentator really. Do you have, a, do you have any faux pas that you, where you've, uh, you
6: look back, and have you stitched up a co-commentator by mistake or anything like that? <laughs> I try
1: not to. As I've, got, as I've got older, I, it's rather like taking your children on an afternoon outing, to be honest with you, <laughs> especially when, when I have um, Jamie and Gary, as I had for the Manchester United Liverpool game recently alongside me. They don't actually say, when are we going to get their dad, but it's a bit like that. <laughs> um, uh, so and, and part of my role, I believe, is to, is to do the opposite of what you're suggesting, really, is to try and keep them happy. And uh, I always say at the end, if you enjoyed it, and if they've enjoyed it, then it's probably been okay. You know, Uh, they're a big, big part of broadcasting these days. And there was a time, of course, when we didn't have co-commentators. When we were there, replays and all. You know, actually, there was a time. There was a time when we didn't have replays. I can go back. (laughs) So it's um, yeah, I've tried not. uh, In terms of faux pas, I'm sure plenty. Probably many uh, remembered by by your listeners but I have a I don't know it's a defense mechanism I suppose Uh, I do stay up all night worrying about when they've happened and I have a mechanism by the middle of the morning the next day I've forgotten them Um, I have to (laughs) you have to go on you can't change live broadcasting and although often you wish you would you come away from a game thinking why did I say that or why didn't I say that because the best lines often occur to you on the way home um but you have to accept that 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 comes with the territory it's a bit like playing you can't um, you can't find a uh, a teammate with every pass can you but it, it's uh, it's been a wonderful life I'm very grateful to all the opportunities ITV first of all and then Sky have given me the opportunity to keep broadcasting and I love doing it Um, and I hope I can do it for a little while longer
0: okay picture this it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise all inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the hotels.com app.
5: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there.
6: What what age were you when you thought... Can you remember the first time you wanted to be a commentator? Were you commentating as, you know, the classic kind of commentating on yourself, playing football as a kid and stuff like that?
1: Or did it come uh, not, later? Not at all. Uh, I had no background in broadcasting at all, unlike most of the commentators that you would be able to name. And um, I wanted to be a player, and I played non-league football till I was coming up 27. Um, yeah. In the last year of that, I was working as a um, production assistant at lwt on the big match and on the ball with the all brian moore and i was missing not playing um that 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 year it took me away from play i had to stop because they were working i was working saturday and sunday and I, I needed a way to get out to a football ground on a on a saturday afternoon and that was the the one route that seemed available to me so i did watch a lot of football on television as a kid I was actually, knowing we were gonna have this conversation, trying to remember my first actual contact with football in a broadcasting sense. I think in my grandparents' house, I listened to the radio commentary of the 1952 FA Cup final. Oh, wow. I, I definitely watched um, the 1953 final, which was- Is that the Matthews one? That was the Matthews one. I definitely watched that because um, my mum, who uh, comes from Chester, as I, I was born in Chester, although I haven't lived in the Northwest much in my life, and although I've spent a lot of time there
7: covering <laughs> <laughs> um, she, football.
1: She was one of four kids, and her father, my grandfather, gave them teams to support, and, and my mum's team was Bolton, who were playing, of course, in the Matthews Cup final, but not mm. on the successful side of it. So I can remember watching that, hoping Bolton won for her. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's a, a strange transition, I suppose. I, I was, I gave myself the best chance of being a footballer because I, I tried it. I never knew the term marginal gains, but I did try those things. I mean, I'm very lucky, I think, that I don't like alcohol. I don't like the taste. So I've never drunk really apart from a few binges as a student. Um, and I was always early to bed, trained hard. Um, and I got as far as I played in the semi League, which there was no national league then. So yeah. it was the best of the non-league scene in the South. There was a professional league called the Southern League. They were sort of side by side, um, but the Eastman League was very good. And then we had teams like wickham Wanderers in it. And uh, I wasn't playing in a very good team and I wasn't a very good player, but I'm really glad that I had a go at it because that's really what yeah. I wanted yeah.
3: to do. You must've been uh, okay, where, where what position did you play? I played up front. I look at Erling Haaland with a complete envy.
6: (laughs) 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 What was your goal-scoring record like? Do you remember your... Because surely you're you're across
1: your stats as a commentator, you must... Strangely enough, um, I've been watching this morning, waiting to talk to you, the Champions League games of both Manchester City and Tottenham, which is the I'm commentator on the weekend. And, of course, there's Erling and Harry, Harry Kane. And they have... The one thing I had in common with them was that I loved scoring goals. Uh, for me, if I came off a pitch and hadn't scored, I felt disappointed, even if yeah. there was I, I did you know winning was was more important still, I guess. but um, when I was 12, I think, I kept a record of all the goals I scored in the playground.
7: Yeah. So <laughs> I was
1: amazing <laughs> it was it was a, it was a was a a commentary thing and a football thing all rolled into one, really, (laughs) because I had my own stats. And in the first term, that's the term from September to Christmas, I was on 499 and we were breaking up that term in the playroom. We played three games a day, you know, this is, yeah. sounds extravagant by, I mean, Merling <laughs> hasn't done this yet, but. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a group of lads to come and play on the day we broke up, after we broke up to play, so I got the 500th goal.
6: Amazing.
1: Yeah, and the <laughs> following term, the second term, I got 512. So in the, in the season-
6: oh, You're prolific. <laughs>
1: 1,012 in the playground. So, um, somewhere in this house and uh, I've, got, I've got the diary in which I recorded it but I'm too embarrassed really to show that's it. incredible.
3: <laughs> how, wow. how did you celebrate that 500th goal? Was it the shirt over the head? 500 no, written on a vest?
1: I, I had nobody to celebrate with because all the others they, they were so reluctant to play to make up the game they all <laughs> they all roared off back to their families to start Christmas celebrations. <laughs> um, that's that was my my pathway I suppose to the world that you know me for, but um, I had a go as a footballer and I played in in, in some games and people paid to come in. (laughs) I got booed off a couple of times and, um, but I wish, I wish I'd done better, but I tried and that was my... uh, ability you'll always have
6: that thousand and twelve goal season do you know
3: Harland's never going to touch
1: that I don't know I don't know (laughs) Erling Harland's on your tail I'll I'll have to ask him about whether he kept records when he was at school because I'm sure he did that 10 times Um, early on is it true that you
6: ghost wrote a Jimmy Hill's column in the Times what was is that true Um, and if so what was that like as an experience
1: It's partially true, partially, partially true. true. It was in either the Sunday People or the News of the World. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah, I did it for that. He he was responsible for the transition from on the field to on the gantry, really. Hmm. I was a freelance journalist for the last 18 months or so when I was playing. And I got this offer to go into television at the time there was a great guy called Brian James who did write for the, the Sunday Times and the Times. He was my mentor, really, in the journalistic world when I, I worked on a magazine while I was still playing. And uh, he, uh, he got me the gig with Jimmy Hill, which was a great thing. Jimmy was uh, absolutely the if you like the Gary Lineker of, of his day in terms mm. of being a, an ex-player and ex-manager, in, in Jimmy's case, to go into television with great authority and great personality. So yes, he would, um, what, what happened was, he would ring me on the Tuesday and say, I want to do something on Brian Clough, for example. And then I'd have to go and chase down Cloughy and write. And I wrote it by hand, obviously, no uh, laptops or computers. Um, I didn't have shorthand, so I had to write it. Jimmy didn't have it either. So I had to write it out like a school essay and deliver it to where Jimmy lived in, uh, in West London. And this particular day, uh, I'd been offered this chance of working at LWT. And it, I normally just put it through the letterbox. But for some reason, either he saw me coming to the door or whatever. I ended up having a coffee with him. And, and he said, um, uh, what are you doing? And I said, well, oh, funny enough, I've, I'm doing pre-season, about to start again with my club. And um, But I'd been offered a chance of to go into television. And he'd just left to go to the BBC. Hmm. Match the day, but he'd been with ITV up to that point, literally just left. And I said, oh, it's your old shop I can go to, you know? He said, well, what do you mean? And I told him what the job was and he said, you're mad, why haven't you taken it? And I went, well, it means stopping playing. And he went, how good are you, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And you said I scored 1,012 goals in the season. Oh, yeah. If I had that, if I'd had that stat to hand, I might have won this argument. But I lost it because he was such a charismatic person. And I went home quite literally. I went home and picked up the phone, half hoping that they would say the job had gone because I'd turned it down they said, "Now you can come in. They said, yeah, yeah, we haven't got anybody else in mind. Um, I'd, I'd known one or two people in my magazine writing. I'd met a few people from LWT. So it was kind of, oh, we know him. Let's give him, why don't we ask him in? And I was the him. And um, they said, come in and I got the job. And then I had to go and tell my manager who was quite a famous person in his time and is still alive. And I'm going to his 90th birthday celebrations at the Oval um, yeah. A week on Wednesday, yeah. Amazing. Mickey Stewart, whose son Alex Stewart, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Mickey was a professional footballer, but mostly known as a cricketer. He played for England, yeah. He'd managed England and cricket, but he also managed Corinthian yeah. Casuals Football Club. So I then had to go and say to him. This pre season was probably ten days before the season started. We were training at the Oval, where he got special dispensation. Huh. So I went, um, I went up to him and said, "Look." Um, Gaffer, probably, I call it in those days. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to play because I've been offered this chance in television. Had he turned around and said, hang on a minute, you know, he's playing the pre-season games, you're going to start next week. Um, I don't know what would have happened. I would have been tempted to turn, go back to television and say no. And he went, good luck, son. And just uh, <laughs> sure dismissed hand, that was it <laughs> oh so so that was yeah that was the end of my senior playing career. although I played uh, thousands of charity matches in the intervening years right up to a year ago and I, the only reason I haven't played this year is nobody's asked me um <laughs> and uh they um yeah so and I, and lw were wonderful they welcomed me in I mean it was a a wonderful team to join. Um, on the ball was the, the Saturday lunchtime show. The big match was obviously the London area of the ITB highlights on a Sunday afternoon. Brian Moore was at the hub of it all. And a great guy called Bob Gardham, who was the director of the big match, was a fantastic football director, had a wonderful rapport with the players. He knew which player was going to react to which circumstance. He was well ahead of the game, well ahead of his time, actually. And it was him about a year later who said, when I'd done a year there, and I was looking to do something that get me out of the building on a Saturday afternoon, he listened to my first tape. I put my little tape recorder to a game at Arsenal, and he listened to it and he said, well, you might, yeah, you might do another one. And then about three months after that, somebody rang him up from Southern Television, which is now Meridian, said, we're short of a commentator for one game. We can't get anybody for one game. They're all under contract. Do you know anybody who might do, be able to do it? And, I was the lucky one that he nominated. It all started from that day.
6: Had you wow. gone to Arsenal with a, what, like a dictaphone and just pretended yeah. you were commentating on it?
1: No, I didn't well, pretend. I did well, you commentated. Commentate. <laughs> commentate, yeah. But it wasn't on, to go no. out. As it did you, were, you were pretending someone was listening. Pretending, was pretending you were on TV. Were listening. Fortunately, yeah. one person listened, and he was the one who had the power Amazing. to give me a job. <laughs> um,
6: were people yes, turning around t- and looking at you and going, who's this guy that's just commentating? Into his no, dictaphone.
1: no, the gantries has all got space for it. But strangely enough, guys, the um, the big match revisited is on. Um, I think ITV4, which yeah, shows right. shows it from those, those times. The match that I was actually at, that Brian was commentating on, of course, for the for the broadcast, was on about a year ago, and it was they uh, finished uh, Arsenal two Queens Park Rangers two. And the whole show was on, but that was the centerpiece match, a 20-minute edit of it. And um, I, my, my partner was sort of I'm, we don't live together, she, I was at her house and, and and watching on her television. I don't know how she gave me permission to do this, but I did have permission to watch football in her house. And uh, I said, come, you've got to come and watch this. You've got to come and watch this. Because this was the day where I got my big chance, you know? And of course there was nothing of me in it. And she was totally bored after <laughs> five minutes of watching. <laughs> I sat there and trawled, remembering what, oh. water. And it was brilliantly, a great journalist, Brian Bond was a wonderful football journalist and in the aftermath of the game in the game there'd been a bit of a flare-up between Alan Ball a World Cup winner, yeah. now playing for Arsenal and Stan Bowles the star of Queen's yeah. Bright Rangers who had England aspirations and Brian had got them in or the show had got them in for the interviews were always recorded on the Sunday morning the day after the match so they'd come mm. in in their own time and they got them sat side by side and he basically said, oh, come on, what was all that about then? <laughs> and and uh, Stan, if you think you're gonna play for England, and I was really, really good television journalist. Yeah. And and though it was nostalgic for me to watch the game, I actually took away, because I had no memories of that, although I probably would have been around the building when it happened, but I had no memories of that. But it just showed how good um, that, that football background was that I learned from Brian and others. Yeah. So, so I'm speaking up for him today. Good, <laughs> he, good, the, good. The title of your podcast, but he, he was... He was, oh, he was that, that's our biggest regret. If that was his biggest regret, the title <laughs> of this podcast is our biggest regret. I really apologise for dropping that on you today. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, it's, it's all right.
6: You went, to, then you go to the World Cups. You, I think your first World Cup was 1978. And then your lead commentator at the 82 World Cup. What was it like travelling to those World Cups in... Um,
1: Argentina, I suppose it was 78, and then Spain in 82. Well, I remember on the plane to Argentina, um, Bob Gardham, who was this you know, eminent director, but also a very playful gentleman as well. We had a pillow fight going on the plane. <laughs> on the plane? Yeah, which would <laughs> be inappropriate, <laughs> but um, I, you have to go along with your bosses, you know. Um, no, it, 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 I was very lucky to go, and I'd been doing it two, two three years, and, and got the last seat on the plane to be honest for for ITV in 78 um the National Union of Journalists of which I was a member then had told all of us all the journalists not to go as with every World Cup as as we're talking now just a few weeks another controversial World Cup every World Cup has seemingly had a political Mm. maelstrom around it and, and Argentina had one because of the dictatorship and but I had to say uh, look, uh, it's my chance to go. Uh,
7: yeah.
1: But and and as as I always believe, you have to experience it for yourself to judge. Yeah. Uh so yeah, I went and um yeah, it was it was amazing. Amazing to go from being a non-league footballer to being a World Cup commentator. Yeah. What what are the stadiums
3: like in seventy eight in Argentina? What was the gantry like?
1: I was quite lucky that I got um there was one terrible one, Cordoba where it was so far away, there was a running track around it, so far away, I did a Peru game and they got a penalty. I couldn't tell who was taking the penalty because <laughs> they had that sash across the shirt, yeah, yeah. so it didn't help with the numbers. But that was that was pretty dreadful. But I did quite a few games in Rosario, which was a, a lovely English-style grounds, you know, where the yeah. were very good. We did have a thing about the numbers on the shirts because uh, Argentina, who obviously went on to, to win the World Cup, they started the tournament with uh, Adidas numbers. You know, Adidas with the three stripes. Yeah. Had They weren't solid numbers. They were three stripe numbers. So uh, two looked like three, looked like five, looked like six, looked like eight, looked like, eight looked like nine. And then you've got 12, 13, 14. So, <laughs> all the ones with the curves in were, were really different. Yeah. Um, and in the group games, which I didn't do any of them, they were, they were real uh, difficult. They were all played in the in the, the main stadium in Buenos Aires, where the gantry wasn't good. And then I got the, the next game and they played Brazil, which was amazingly fortunate. I wasn't supposed to do it. The weather was bad, it was a Winter World Cup. The weather was bad and um, we were told to stay put instead of flying around to our venues. So I stayed put in Rosario and, and ke- coming to me were Argentina and Brazil. So <laughs> really lucky, but I was terrified because um, um, because the numbers, you know, a lot of the commentary position was good. And of course, a lot of them, long long hair, yeah. same sort of look, um, yeah. so I'm, I'm very nervous. I mean, obviously very early in my commentary career. Um, I went to ask if I could come to work and train and they said, no, um, you should have come yesterday. And I go, well, I didn't know yesterday. I was, I was supposed to be leaving it. And then I tried my sympathy, but oh, I'm so young. And, you know, please give me a chance. No. So I snuck around the back of the training ground no. and and looked over the fence. <laughs> and, and I got spotted by Minotti, the manager, oh, but wow. I'm still looking. And, and um, I noticed there were no Argentinian fans who were congregating in the, uh, the surrounding area, but they weren't looking over the fence. And they looked at me looking over the fence as if I was risking a life and a limb. And I soon found out that I was. They sent the heavies round. No. To, yeah, they did uh, to try and, But I. So they came up to me, and all commentators will tell you this: if you've still got a chance of identifying a player before you get beaten up, you'll use the last second. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, to <clear. laughs> so so I waited to the last minute till the batons were drawn. And all the players had stopped and were watching. <laughs> Training session stopped. They were looking up at what was going on because Minotti had organised um, to get rid of me. And I went, uh, I go Inglaterra, uh, Argentina, no amigos. Uh, no camera, no Intervista. Uh, just looking, you know, and they tried to make... And I must have said something that, that struck a nerve because they got on the walkie-talkies and the battens suddenly were lowered and not onto me and and there was a bit of jabbering going on and they, I basically got permission to stay and so I watched but the two Amazing. ends two ends to the story one, Argentina then came out and played with a different kind of number so the numbers were absolutely <laughs> solid obviously being complaints from all the broadcasters so I got Argentina in a proper shirt with proper numbers yeah. so it was easy to identify 40 years later, I'm in Russia for the World Cup and I meet Mario Kempez, the star of our team. We go for a coffee together. He's doing, I used to do the FIFA computer game uh, um, with Andy Gray and then Alan Smith. He's doing it um, in Latin America. He's the Alan Smith, Andy Gray person for a friend of mine called Fernando Palumbo. So Fernando fixed we have a coffee. I tell him this story and he goes, I remember that we were all looking up Wondering amazing. what was going to happen to this, <laughs> this guy who had the effrontery to watch our <laughs> training session. And I said, well, you're having a coffee with the guy. So amazing! I I that wrapped it up 40 years on. And Kemper's was delightful, by the way. Absolutely. Delightful. So there's my story.
6: Um, You then went to like, you went to loads of World Cups. So you went to obviously 82, where you had Ian St. John as your co-commentator. And then you went to 86 as ITV's lead commentator. So that's eight years you've gone from being the last name on the plane to being the, the lead commentator. Were you at the England-Argentina in
1: 86? I was, um, I was. Did you spot the handball? I did, um, not I not, not, be, be totally honest with you. I, I knew something was amiss because Peter Shilton um, never chased referees. And, yeah. and England were, by today's standards, very mild-mannered when things went a, a bit awry, you know? And, and suddenly there was a complete, an utter meltdown from the England players and understandably so. So on the first replay, you could, you could see it's on YouTube. So you can judge me for it. Go and, go and have yeah. a listen to it. But just to say Brian Moore had a big, in 82 and 86, had a big influence on it because yeah. I got the final in 82 because Brian decided not to come. He was always going to do the final in 82 mm. in the, the most of your, um, your listeners and regular devotees would be far too young to to know this, but Brian Moore was ITV's lead commentator from late 60s through to 1998. Um, And, but also for the first half of that, he was the panel, he held sway. He was the chairman of the panel, which was the first real attempt to get experts into analyze games and, and provide entertainment beyond the match itself. So he didn't go to... Um, the World Cups because he was based in London and he was regarded as much more important as that that role. Um, But in 82, because um, Spain wasn't very far away, he was going to come out and do the final. But on the Monday before the... And I was given the England Games, which was a great honour. I mean, i have been doing it seven seven or eight years and I I had the England Games. Um, But England got knocked out on the Monday before the final on the Sunday. And Brazil got knocked out. (laughs) And so left, um, what was it, West Germany, France, uh, Poland and Italy. And I don't know whether the polls frightened Brian. I'll never, I never really asked him this, but I got a message on the Tuesday morning and we all got the message on, on the Monday night that Brian wasn't going to come for the final.
7: Oh, so wow.
1: somebody was going to get the final and there were four of us left. There were four games left, four commentators left. And um, yeah, I was very lucky. And Ian St. John, was, who sadly is no longer with us, was a, one, a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, he was, um, he, he's, he's helped me through it, really. But it was a great final um, Italy and, and Germany, West Germany, and Marco Tardelli with his eyes out on storks running when he yeah. scored. And in 86, then I was told in, in the January of 86, Brian was coming this time don't have any hopes of, <laughs> of doing the final. And I, so it was fine. I was treated absolutely perfectly by my bosses. And so I knew. So, but I did, um, obviously Brian wasn't coming till the final. So I did all the England games and, and yeah, I was there in the Azteca when um, Maradona scored one goal, which should, have, should not have counted, and one goal which should have counted as two. Um, the second goal was <laughs> sensational. So, um, although, if you look at it very closely, there was a foul on Glenn Hoddle before Maradona got the ball. So, oh, really? No, think, oh, yeah, if only VAR
3: had been around.
1: If VAR um, had been around, it would not have stood. And then what would we have been robbed? And We'd have nothing to talk about now. But um, just uh,
6: We're just pleased it wasn't around in 66, because then it would, have been, it would have gone the other way. Oh, that was over the
7: line. I don't know. <laughs>
3: Um, uh, so Martin, I was trying to figure this out. I, I think you've been at every World Cup since 1978. And obviously we've got a bit of a penchant for the World Cups in the 90s. But I wonder if you had an opinion on what is the best World Cup you've been
1: to? Oh, well, that's, a, that's a really good I think 2006 was very good. Um, mm. t- and, and the one in France was very good. You tend to judge it as a commentator, partly by the football, of course, but also by the way your work routine is made possible by... Uh, transport, for example, I mean France. The trains are brilliant. Um, <laughs> Germany, the trains were brilliant. So we could. I did the two semifinals in Germany, um, which were, I think was it Dortmund and then um, Munich, and and I just like slept on a train in between. The train was, you know, the 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 first semifinal went to extra time. Then there was back to back days. And so I just jumped on a train and, and put the seat back and woke up in Munich and did the next game. You know, you, you, there's some countries not easy to do that. Yeah. Uh, I've loved them all. I, I just get that buzz when somebody asks you, it is a bit like a player being selected to play in a World Cup. Yeah. And then so everyone that I've been to, I did work on 74 with Brian because um, uh, I just joined ITV, that, that was the year when I, I just started and I hadn't yet done uh, my fateful sound recording at Arsenal. So I was working that summer um, with ITV in that World Cup, but not not at the venue. So, yeah, I've been to everyone since, and I've done, since 86, I've done all the finals, and I've very humbly said I've got one more at least in me because I'm going to Qatar for the the channel. When I left ITV to go to Sky, of course, Sky don't have the rights for for major tournaments. Um, but uh, I I met a friend in Australia in 1988 who happened to be a producer of a television channel. And when I left ITV, um, I sacrificed the 1990 World Cup for them because I left in the March. And um, I got a call saying, are you available to work on the 1990 World Cup? And I said, you bet. And (laughs) can you do 39 games? And I went... Yeah, obviously they were, I wasn't all at the venue for them but I did for 39 games uh, two a day off tube and things like that in the group stage um yeah so it's been it's been brilliant honestly I'm the luckiest person alive to have been a pretty shabby center forward although not at school <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and and then um, you know doing what I've been doing for all these years so it's a blessing and you know I'm grateful every day to be. With them, yeah.
6: um, just before we move on, to Sky, uh, we digressed. I think it was the VIR. How did you end up doing the eighty-six World Cup? We we didn't get to the end of
1: oh, eighty-six. No, I didn't do it, Brian Kane. Oh, Brian, Brian Kane. Came. But I had the choice, and this was an interesting one. It's, it's a broadcaster's mentality, I suppose. Um, if you remember in 86, well, you won't remember because you're too young, but in 86, there was a real problem getting the commentary lines out of Mexico because Mexico had only got the World Cup quite late because it was supposed to be yeah. in Colombia. Uh, yeah. So um, I was third on um, the third game ITV had, and I was the first one that was heard. The first two, Brian off tube in London, off, off what we call off tube, he just did it off the monitor because the commentator in the venue they couldn't get the patch the sound through. So. Um, wow. So, so we get to the final and Brian's coming. So they said to me, well, you can come and watch the final, come to the final in the stadium. Thanks for all your efforts and everything. Or you can sit in the television broadcast center in case Brian's sound goes down oh. to the venue and we need to have a backup commentator. So I, I when I say... I, I I, I did the World Cup final. I, I didn't go to that World Cup final. I chose the latter, and I sat, and it wasn't easy. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. It was like it was like being a sub when you want to get on, you know. And, uh, yeah. Um. But I was still grateful for the fact. Um. And then I thought when it went to two two, I thought, oh, it's going to go to extra time. I'm going to have another half an hour of this sort <laughs> of. It was personal purgatory. It wasn't purgatory for anybody else, but me. And uh, so I ended up. Um, uh, so grateful for the winning goal, going in. <laughs> and, and at the end, um, the, there was still a presentation to do, and they said you can go now. Because I was in this little booth in in uh, Mexico City, and he said uh, they said you can go now because if the presentation's not commentary, they'll commentate it on it from back in London, so you don't have to worry yeah. about it. And I shot out. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, because it was, you know, when he'd done it four years earlier, and of course it was right. I mean, I I shouldn't have done it four years earlier. I did my best and I can look back on it with a certain amount of pride. There was a goal from Paolo Rossi, the first goal of the final. And Paolo Rossi had scored three um, to beat Brazil. He scored two to beat Poland. And now he's going to, was he going to score the goal? And it was like a real mess in the penalty area. But he ran away celebrating like he scored a goal. And I know <laughs> from my own people attempts to be a non-league goalscorer, you can claim anything. Before cameras, you can claim anything. <laughs> and, and I thought, he could have claimed this. And it's the World Cup final, and I'm in there. I'm, I've been sort of pushed in as a, a, as a late replacement for the great Brian Moore. Um, but it was his goal. And uh, so, um, yeah, so I, I was ahead of the game, really. So I, but when I got to Sky, um, the chance to go into um, satellite television, as we called it then, Um, I think it was just the accident of life, really. I was the right age. I had 17 years experience with ITV. Not all of it as a commentator, but a a lot of World Cups and other tournaments. So it just felt fortunate. If it had been founded six years earlier, the Premier League, I wouldn't have been close. I don't think. And six years later, I'd have been regarded as the old git I am now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> excuse excuse
6: <laughs> my ignorance on this, but you signed for British Satellite Broadcasting in March nineteen ninety. You said, "So yeah, what, no, that what, wasn't Sky. That was yeah." That so was what?
1: Different. What? That's what the square. Do, do you remember the square? Yeah, my dad had all well, those squares yeah, satellites. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, so what like, did you commentate on for that? Yeah, rights wise, is there nothing? What yeah. was what was there? England versus Brazil was the first game we did live from oh, that's Wembley.
7: That's
1: yeah, good. Uh, Gary Lineker, 1-0. Uh, and then we did the Old Firm game on April the 1st because I did an anniversary thing from it And um, when we were in the pandemic 2020. 30 years on. I think that was the first British game broadcast live on, the, on that kind of sports channel. Um, and we had, yeah, we had the FA Cup. Um, we did the final and the final replay. The... The semi final. I didn't do the four three Palace. I did the three all Oldham. United, yeah, which was very good. Yeah, yeah. But it didn't quite trump the, the Alan Padue, who, like me, played for Corinthian so It's the only sort of real contact we have where I talk about <laughs> our, our days in non-league football. Um, and uh, and he scored the winner at Villa Park in that famous game, which still gets shown now, of course. So. Uh, yeah, but there was enough. There was enough, um, and and it was, do you know, it was a big choice. Yeah, I, a huge I, move. I think I think I was about fifth or sixth choice, to be honest with you, because there was a lot of uncertainty, and the main broadcasters, the the guys who've been doing it a bit longer than me, I don't think were prepared to take the risk. But I'm, you know, Brian was still going strong. Uh, ITV had uh, Alan Parry who, who also did the, the track and field commentaries which were very big at the time as well. Yeah. So I was probably standing still at best. And, and I still wasn't gonna go, a bit like the Jimmy Hill thing. But a, a friend of mine called John Hockey said one thing to me that um, changed my mind in a flash. He said, I said, no one will be watching. And he went, everybody in football will be watching. And I went, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, and then
7: you,
6: two years later, you're in the right place at the right time, basically. Mm. Do you remember hearing that Sky had got the Premier League?
1: Yeah, I had a call from the uh, chief of uh, Sky Sports, it was an Australian called David Hill we were there. Sky had bought out British satellite broadcasting. Mm. So so we were all sort of moved across. We were all contracted to another company, but we were working for Sky. And that was a transitional period. This changed it all, really. And he rang up and said, can you come to um, Austerlila, the the headquarters, now? (laughs) I was doing a couple of voiceovers for somebody else prior to the um, Euros of uh, 1992 in in a studio in, in London. And, so I said, give me 10 minutes and I'll be on the tube, I'll get out there and, uh, and we had this meeting and what are we going to do? And the first thing that came up, Andy Gray was, had left um, British Satellite Broadcasting and gone to be assistant manager at Aston Villa
7: hmm.
1: under Ron Atkinson. And, and the meeting just said, we've got to get him, get him back out of football. He's got to be in it. Um, and that was virtually the first decision that was made. But, yeah, right place, right time, I suppose. And um, first game. I've got a big picture behind me. Forestry, Liverpool. Forest Liverpool. First televised game. Eddie shame. Last goal for Nottingham Forest, but first goal on live Premier League goal on Sky Sports. Yeah. Um, so, did it feel like
6: it was any different that first week? Did you think something's happening here? Or did you did it just feel
1: like the, the, the first game of the new season? I felt something's happening, but would it last? I think that was the yeah. so not not so much the football, but the the broadcasting. Yeah, um, we used to travel um to games on the train. I still do that now when I can. It's not so easy at the moment, but still a preferred way of traveling. Uh, and we would go through. Um, towns on the road and, and we'd be looking at counting the dishes and we'd be going, <laughs> oh wow oh there's a few more dishes here than when we went past if you're going through Stoke or somewhere like that yeah, on the way yeah. to Manchester or Liverpool and we'd be counting those because we didn't we didn't know but every effort went into it. The the difference was I'd obviously done live broadcasting before but not not very often that, that's where and it's live comes from because I spent the first 17 years of my career you very rarely got live games world cups and there were a few i did do a few old first division live games itv had that sort of snatch of the day i think it was cool at the time with greg Dyke, and i did some of those but brian obviously had the vast majority of them and alan had some as well um so for me to, to broadcast live is still sort of special and although it sounds like a catchphrase, it never was meant to be. I, I genuinely am excited, and it's live, that you can, we, we're gonna see this as it happens, you know, and I'm lucky enough to be sitting here holding a microphone. So, um, so yeah, that, that first broadcast, I know we were on really early, Um, and I had to do something in the first raft of, here we've got him, we've got him on the touchline, him and him, and then up in the gantry is him being me, and so I had to say something deeply meaningful for about 45 seconds at two o'clock for a four o'clock kickoff, something like that, and then I wasn't required again until five to four, so. (laughs) (laughs) Did
3: did you try to do anything different with your commentary for the dawn of the Premier League era? Was there anything different
1: about your commentary? The only thing that was different was a lot of promotions for what was coming up on Sky. And I think (laughs) looking back on that, that wasn't something I was particularly used to in my live ITV games. We didn't do too much in that. So I think at the time it was... Regarded, we were like we overhyped everything. And and I didn't I always thought that was unfair, but when you were doing that, you were sort of selling the next show or the next game, it sort of came into your mind, oh gosh, I'll be accused of hyping this. But we, we really believed in it. And the best thing about it was that everybody felt like about football, like we do. The cameramen did. And the producers, the directors, everybody involved, the sound men, loved football. So we were a team of football lovers bringing the love of football to, you know, the live screens. And uh, that had, didn't happen before because you would work on, say, midweek sports special in the 80s. And you'd say, and the cameraman would say, oh, I, you know, I've just got here. I've been doing Coronation Street. <laughs> you know? So it, it was, it was um, the, the specialism of it was, was special. You commentated on, like,
6: so many iconic games in the 90s. Um, one that sticks out, Liverpool 4, Newcastle 3, April 1996. What, what are
1: your memories of commentating on that one? Well, that is the game that I always say is the best game I've ever commented on. Really? Happy wow. to say that to you. And I watched it during... Sky did a retro on it during, during lockdown. And I watched it with my son, who's now what is he's coming up next month, he would be 35. So he was a kid when this happened. And he, he knew I'd talked about it, but he'd never watched it. So we watched it all together. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is gonna be a massive disappointment because I've said this to everybody virtually since, I, in the commentary, actually, Andy and I say, about this is gonna be, this is what, what a classic, this is as it's actually happening. And, and we watched it and it was even better than I remembered. <laughs> so, <laughs> So that was that was reassuring. It had it had everything really in terms of uh, Robbie Fowler scored two, Stan Collymore scored two, Ginola scored, Ferdinand scored, Asprea scored, and um, uh, it were, they were great players. They were both going for the title. Nobody, neither of them won it. <laughs> as it uh, had that iconic shot of Kevin of yeah. your podcast title um, leaning over the advertising. <laughs> recordings. Uh, and, and, but the, the legend has it that um, by the time he got back to Newcastle, he realised that they'd been in a, a, an absolutely amazing game and that they, they treasured their part in it, really. I'm sure it wasn't quite as simple as that, but um, yeah. no professional wants to lose, especially in those circumstances. But it was, it was truly brilliant. There's a, a little a footnote to it. Um, at the 2014 World Cup, I'm broadcasting for the Australian Channel. It's been so kind to me during these tournaments. And it's the opening game, and I'm talking to Stan Collingwell, who's working for Talk Sport. And we get, there's a lift. Normally, there aren't lifts up the gantries, which is one reason why I know that I can still keep going if I can walk up the steps to most of the gantries. That's <laughs> not so on a weekly basis, that is. Anyway, there was a lift, and Stan and I go in the lift. So we get up to the gantry level, which is very high up in the stadium. Lift. Uh, doors open and facing us is Tino Aspria. he looks at Colimo and he goes, you cost me my Premier League medal. <laughs> <laughs> and this was 2014. Wow. And, and was big, big smiles and everything. Yeah. It wasn't vindictive or anything like yeah. that. But I just thought that's another little justification for picking it as the, as yeah, the best i best. <laughs> and, 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 and from what was then the best gantry in the world. Was it Anfield? But but when they knock the stand down, it's not so good
7: now. It's, oh,
1: what's the worst gantry you've ever been in? Anyone with a running track. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we do. I mean, West Ham's difficult, but it's not impossible. Yeah. We've we've been there a few times now, and and obviously they've, uh, they've done some good things about they squared off the ends, which makes it more of a football ground, I think. Yeah, um, I know we would all like them to square off the sides as well, but. Um, that's not going to happen. So, yeah, we like to be close. Yeah. Uh, You know, that's just I think the fans would say the same as well. And where you
3: are. I, I just want to touch just one one thing on that Liverpool Newcastle game. The 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 culmination of that game, I think it's one of your most iconic lines of commentary where it's Barnes, Rush, Barnes, Rush, the one two and then. Oh, and it's Connie Moore.
1: Conley Moore we, closing we, in. Yeah.
3: Oh, kind of a closing in. Do you think that's I mean, what are your most iconic lines? What are the lines you're most proud of? That one always sticks in my head for me.
1: Do you know what? The word the word I hate, and you've just used it, is lines. It sounds as though we're yeah. scripted, you yeah. know? And, and and we're certainly not. And at least, certainly, I don't feel that I... You would think about things beforehand, but you wouldn't think about the words you use. There's a lot of what ifs in commentating. What if um, Spurs win at Man City on Saturday, next game we're going to do well. They've done it again, you know, they're becoming a bit of a ogie side. What if City wins, Spurs lose? So, you know, that'd be their, their first thing. So, you know, the, 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 you, you want to make sure that you've got that kind of um, backup to to what you're, what you're broadcasting. But, no, I mean, it, it just happens. Yeah, yeah. It just happens. I, I, I really, I'd really, I'd like to say there's a trick to it. There isn't. The trick is loving football. I would say two things to young commentators. Is check your love for the game, because if you don't love it, It'll finish you off. You you'll not last very long. Because yeah. The schedule would seem repetitive, and it's not. Yeah. It's not. Every game's different. Um, but if you don't love the game, you, you you might not appreciate. And the other thing I say to them, and it sounds so obvious, but there's a bit of um, strength behind it, in is watch the game. In other words, don't go with a preconceived idea that this yeah. is what happened because they've always done that. And and they will do that, and then suddenly something changes, uh, and you you don't react to it. So you've got to be prepared to say, well, that's that's my prep, but that's that's there if and when I need it. But let's see what happens. And if you react to games, then you're far likely more instinctive than to to say, oh, they've done that because this is the way they play. Well, actually, they weren't playing that way. It <laughs> weren't, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, it is. It is sometimes it's um sometimes your football uh, ness and I, I guess I've tried to explain. I've come more from a football, although a humble football background, but yeah I was coached by George Cohen and won the World Cup. So I, I've got one link between yeah. my... <laughs> um he had won the world cup when I when he was coaching me, you that know, was like late sixties. Um and uh I think he just he just sense but I I'll give you one example where footballers can get it wrong. This is the 86 World Cup. Gary Lineker got a hat-trick against Poland. Yeah. The third goal, where the goalkeeper was like, it was a completely straightforward catch, and he dropped it, and Gary knocked mm. it. And then my first instincts were, well, yeah, terrible mistake by the goalkeeper. As seconds before, oh, Lineker's got a hat-trick. And with, with hindsight... I should have gone Liverpool. Uh, so lineker has got the hat trick. Yeah, and what a terrible mistake he's been gifted it by, by by the goalkeeper. So it's there's nothing exact about it. You just have to yeah. have to go with your go with your gut feeling, really. And do you? I mean, each commentator presumably
6: got their own kind of um, different way of preparing and stuff. Do what, what? How much? And has it changed over the years? What you do in the build up to a game, or is it like a routine now?
1: It's sort of a routine. How I do it is, obviously, you know, you can put stuff on your computer and yeah, hate copy and pasting because that's not like writing it out again, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But basically, I, I, I try and create what's the smell of the fixture. So I couldn't really think about Man City v Spurs until Spurs had played the Champions League game. Yeah. Because that will affect... Did anybody get injured? It looks like not, you know. So I'm now processing as we're talking today. I'm processing what's happened and what that will carry forth into to the Saturday evening game. Um, so you you want to know: Are there any landmarks? Is it anybody's birthday? What's the history of the matches? I'm obviously recent history of Manchester and Spurs is very um, is very pro Tottenham. Um, and then you. You sort of try and look beyond that to how might they play. Conte is quite an easy manager to predict the system that they're going to play. Um, but then I won't. But I'll watch the game. It might not be what, yeah. what I think, or more importantly, what Gary Neville thinks. Um, and we just go from there, really. And, you know, you've put a few thoughts in my head about the goal scoring record of Erling Haaland from what we talked about earlier. So <laughs> Um, if I can grab him for and I'll see if he's got any schoolboy records that I should know. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of notes are you taking
3: in? Have you, do you have like reams of notes in front of you?
1: I have an envelope folder. I haven't got it here, but I have an envelope folder. I should put the sheets of A4 paper in. One for each team, one sheet for each team, one sheet for each set of players. And the script for the opening, the one thing we do script is the team game. Mm. And of course, you can't always script that on a yeah. Friday for a Saturday and on Saturday for a Sunday. Very rarely can you do that, but you, you might have a stab at it. You might think, well, they're unchanged, you know, they, um, or there'll be one change or, or whatever and somebody's not there, you know, maybe the players are definitely not going to play. So, you can. So and I have a page for that. Um, I have a couple of what-ifs um, just to remind me at the end about what, what this result might mean. Um, usually that's tweeted right before kickoff because there's a game at two o'clock that might affect for example, mm. Brighton beat Leicester, and that meant that Man United, if they beat Arsenal, couldn't go fourth. Yeah. Had Brighton not beaten Leicester, Man United beat Arsenal to go fourth. So you need to. Be, the table's yeah. going to go up on the screen thirty seconds after you finish. So you you mm. want to be on the really uh, on the green with it. So a little bit things like that, but no, mostly it's um, it just comes from really being. Obsessed with one aspect of
6: that's so nice like, to hear that it's not kind of mechanical, but it's literally wow. kind of the result of
1: passion. It's just, it's just the opposite, you know. You can do it with no notes, to be honest, it wouldn't be as um, as detailed. Uh, and when you, and I know, as I know in the younger commentators, they do put a lot of stats in, but that's that's a prop, you know. You, you've got yeah. to make sure you get through, um, you know, the especially the first 20 minutes of matches you get into your stride silence is quite a a useful tool in some countries i'm told if you're silent for more than five seconds they go we've got a sound problem the mic's gone (laughs) Um, that's not true at sky (laughs) Um, and also obviously as you get older you get more confident situation but i still i get that nice nervous feeling before it's kind of weird when you think are they going to say and your commentator is gary Neville, jamie carrigan with Martin Tyler. And then we think, that's me. And I'm gonna have to speak for the best part of 50 minutes now. Um, And who knows what's gonna happen. (laughs) It is a wonderful, wonderful job to have. And anybody and all the young ones coming into it have glorious years ahead.
3: Well, it's interesting you mentioned jobs because it's not your only job commentary. And this is an astounding fact about- No, no,
1: it is my only job. Well, you are a football coach. Yeah, for Dartford, that's not, that's not a job. 17 years I've been doing it with a manager called Alan Dowson. I'm just the oily rag and we're at, <laughs> we've been at five clubs and amazingly we've spent three years in the National League, which is oh, probably wow. a bit higher than, than the, but, but I've, not, I've, ne- I've never got paid for it. And oh, I don't wow. ever want, because with, with money comes responsibility. Yeah, and I've, When I'm not required to broadcast, then I've been able to help a friend and, and they, that's basically what it's been. We've had That's some great amazing. adventures. The only time the world's really collided, we played Watford in the third round of the FA Cup at Woking three years ago. And I've got, um, obviously, <laughs> on Boxing Day, so the game was in January. On Boxing Day, I was doing um, Watford v Chelsea for Sky. So the draws made in the cup and everything, and. Uh, Paul Ince drew it out, actually. I was at the draw. It was drawn at Stamford Bridge. <laughs> he knew why I was there. And, and then we were like, it was you know, looking across the room when it came out. Or, or home and like, get me a Premier League team. Get me a Premier League. And we got Watford, which was fantastic. They were great behind Watford. But I went to this game on the on the boxing day and they go, you can't come here. You're a sc- You're a spy now. You can't come
7: here.
1: I said, yeah, I'm going to come up with a plan for Woking to beat Watford. You're in the- we were in the National League South. So we weren't even in the national even. I love football. I told you I wanted to play, so I never wanted to coach. But um, it just sort of felt He needed a bit of help, and it sort of escalated from a couple of weeks pre-season in 2005. <laughs> Here we are at our fifth different club, but it's um, it's just it's just fun and. Uh, for, for everybody else, it's their job, of course it is. But yeah, I do I do some of the coaching, but That's great. only only when there's nobody else there. <laughs>
3: <laughs> are, you, are you nicking? Are you like stealing
1: tips of Premier League managers? Are you kind yes. of assessing
3: what they're doing, really? Of course,
1: of course. Yeah. Wow. That's about the best thing I do. I go and watch a Premier League training session, and then I think, well, we could adjust that for us. Um, wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, I mean, I'll give you an example. This is a few years ago now, but. I was given a, a running, a running pre-season running drill, really, which was across the pitch and back, and the Premier League players did it in 18 seconds. Then they had a minute's rest, and they did it again. They kept doing it for a sequence. So I said to our players, like, um, they Premier League players can do it in 18 seconds, but I'll give you 20. And they went, no, 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 we're going to do it in 18. And, <laughs> and so that's the, that's the kind of thing. And I still do that drill, actually. I still do it so um amazing but, but please don't please don't over uh, emphasize no. what is what is helping a friend on a regular yeah and it's it's another another reason to go to games really and, uh, and i love food. so it's, it's not um i've got no badges it's from the school of hard knocks basically <laughs> that i apply my principles of, of helping out in football clubs amazing, amazing.
6: We always end with the same question, which is uh, what well, we d- depends the date on the guest. But if you could go back to the nineteen seventy eight World Cup and from there do it all again, would you? Yes. Simple. That see, <laughs> you're not overthinking it. Gary Neville said no because he enjoys eating chocolate bars now,
1: and he didn't get to in the nineties. So I still feel guilty eating chocolate bars. He doesn't. He, he brings chocolate. And I'm, I'm on the training ground. He's just in the boardroom <laughs> at Salford. So <laughs> I try to... And the wine gums are worse, actually. He gave me a packet after the Man United-Arsenal game. Um, I had to drive home because, obviously, a lot of problems with the trains. I had to drive from Manchester back south. And he threw this packet of wine gums at me. And I go, no, no, no. They lasted till Wednesday morning. So I didn't oh, do too bad. For that's them.
6: not too bad. Wednesday not too morning.
1: bad. But I, I ate them all. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's a nice
6: life. It's, it's genuinely been such a joy talking to you because your passion shines through, your kind of feeling of kind of joy at what you've lived through and what you've achieved, and the fact that you still get to do it is just so obviously there. So, thank you so much for doing it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Martin Tyler. It's been my pleasure as well. Thanks, guys. <laughs> There we go, that was Martin Tyler. If you want more from him, go to anotherslice.com forward slash quicklykevin, where an extended version of that interview lurks with lots and lots of other content. Now, before we go, a uh, quick quiz to end. Shall I set the quiz? It's going to be a special version of um, starting 11. And it's not a starting 11, it's starting 22. And what it is, is you two choosing uh, players that played in the Scotland squad at the 1990 World Cup, because I know Skull looked at the 1986 squad, but obviously this was at the tail end of Scotland's um, uh, golden generations. Dominance. <laughs> Dominance in the,
7: the yeah. international yeah. scene.
6: How are you feeling about this, Michael? Um,
4: pff, not not strong at all.
3: Skull? Man alive.
6: But you should remember, they, they've still got a lot of the players from their absolute golden era. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right. Skull to start. Um... Uh, shall I start with the best goalkeeper in the world Andy Gorham correct still on the bench so
4: incredibly <laughs>
3: <laughs> at this point
4: uh, I will start with the second best goalkeeper in the world Jim Layton correct Yeah. Oh. still holding it's amazing that Jim Layton who's 31 in
6: 1990 then Andy Gorham comes in Andy Gorham's there in 96 then Jim Layton's back in in France 98 at the age of 39 which is incredible, wow. considering Andy Gorham's the world's best goalkeeper. But there we go. <laughs> um,
3: God, come on is now! Kenny, is, Kenny, is Kenny Dalglish playing in 1990? I'm not. That feels like a gamble. I'm not going to go with that. It, um, I'd say it's not even a gamble. Okay, I don't. Know, I, I don't know which way that. No, I, mean, go. I mean, I mean, I'm going to give you a clue. <laughs> Kenny
6: Dalglish, who's just resigned as manager of Liverpool, was not still playing. But was player-manager, wasn't he, in 1990? No. Kenny, I'm going to give you a clue. You can argue as much as you want. <laughs> Kenny Duglitz
3: not in the <laughs> Scotland squad. Um, Gordon Strachan. He's not in the squad. What? Gordon Strachan
6: did not make the 1990 World <laughs> Cup squad. hell, that was... He won the league two years later, though, didn't he? That's
3: mad. Email in and it, tell it. us
6: why Gordon Strachan didn't make the Scotland squad. We'd be fascinated to know. It speaks to the depth of quality that <laughs> you can't name anyone.
4: <laughs> Michael, um, I'm going to go for Ali McCoist. Correct.
3: Oh, really? Wow.
6: Why wouldn't Ali McCoyst be in the squad? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's too like he's <laughs> I don't 27. Know what's going on here? He's part Is of he the golden 27 Gen? in
3: ni- He's 27 in 1990. Yeah, he's part of the Limey. golden. in. Any more? Skull? Um, Gordon Jewry would be my other one. He is really in the squad. Really. You threat, yes. Really? Do you want to carry right, on, mate.
4: Michael? We'll give Skull an extra life here, Michael. Do, do I get an extra life, or are we just yeah? yeah. I, I mean, you've, you're okay. going to win. You're going to win. Just enjoying Skull's misery. Skulls used two two of the ones that I would have gone for. Uh, I think Mo Johnson.
3: Yeah, Mo Johnson's there. The the literally the last one I would have would be Alex McLeish, but I don't know. He's probably he is in the
6: squad. Yes, out. he is. He's, 90, he's 31. Really,
4: Michael. Uh, I mean, I'm just pure gambles now. But I think he's probably old enough to have made the squad. Gary McAllister,
6: correct? Who was playing for Leicester Ooh. at the time? Oh, really man. good. Looking at this squad, little bit of fact about Gary McAllister is one of those poor bastards whose birthday is on Christmas Day. Oh, <laughs> is he really? Yeah. There you go. Do you want the rest of the squad? Skull, you're not going to get any more, are you? Nah, nah. The ones you could have had, Roy Aitken. Of Newcastle? No, Richard Goff. No, no, no. Paul no, McStay. No. Oh yeah. Paul McStay's quite a big yes. deal at Celtic. Yeah, yeah, Morris yeah, Malpass. Yeah. Jim Bett. Murdo McLeod. Gary Gillespie at Liverpool. That's quite a quite a big one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan McAnally, Craig Levine, went on to be a manager. Stuart McCall, obviously. Stuart McKinney. A young John Collins. David right. McPherson. Wow. Robert Fleck and Brian Gunn. There you go. Brian yeah. Gunn. Brian, Brian Gunn. Gunn. He was a great goalie, Brian Gunn, but he was behind the two best goalkeepers in the world. So.
3: <laughs> what bad luck to yeah, have been that good exactly. but born
4: in that generation. What a shame. Uh, Michael? Um, I think in tribute to Scotland's golden generation, I'm going to pick the um, uh, James Horner's main theme to Braveheart. Oh, there we go.
6: Oh, great theme, James. Brilliant. Well, enjoy that. Oh, all it leaves is for you to say one thanks, Carl.
3: We'll see you next week, and until then, Stuart Slater, Zero Caps for Scotland. See you later.